We return this morning to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 23. We'll be picking up with verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 50. And going through the end of the chapter to verse 56. And a man named Joseph who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. He had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews who was waiting for the kingdom of God, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Father, we are grateful to be able to hear your voice once again in your word and to be able to have held up before us your son, the one who came and died and was buried for us. Help us, Father, to see him more clearly today, for it is in his name that we ask it. Amen. In the narrative of our Lord's suffering, the climax is unmistakably the cross, the crucifixion itself. That is what everything that happened over the previous three years of Jesus' life and ministry was building to. And that is why, as we read in the Gospel of John, one of the Lord's last utterances on the cross was, it is finished. But the story doesn't end there. Because Jesus does not remain on the cross. And Luke does not complete his account with Jesus remaining on the cross. There will be, as we know, resurrection. But before there can be resurrection, there's got to be burial. And Luke turns his attention to that subject in our text this morning. There is no doubt that the burial of the Lord is something of an anticlimax a letdown after the earth-shaking, breathtaking events of those fateful six hours that our Lord hung on the cross. But it is an absolutely essential part of the story and the resolution of the crisis through which our Lord has passed. The Lord's burial was not incidental to the Christian church. Throughout its history, 
The church has recognized the importance of not only the death and the resurrection of Jesus, but also the burial as well. In the Apostles' Creed, we confess that we believe that Jesus is the one who is crucified, dead, and buried. And that article of the Creed is based on the teaching of the New Testament itself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul wrote the church in Corinth and says, What I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. Paul in Romans chapter 6 treats it as a matter of great importance that Jesus was buried for us. And that when he was buried, we were buried with him. This is one of the focal points of Paul's discussion of our identity with Christ as his people. So the burial of the Lord following his death on the cross is not some mere historical detail. It's taught in the scripture, it has been confessed through the ages by the church, that the Lord's burial was a very important part of what the Savior did in regard to our redemption. So I want you to think through this with me this morning and consider why Jesus had to be buried. First reason is this. Christ's burial was the culmination and completion of his humiliation and his suffering and his death for our sins. We might have thought otherwise. After all, Luke told us in the previous passage that Jesus has already committed his spirit to the Father. John records that just before giving up his spirit, Jesus said, it is finished. Meaning, of course, that the redemptive work he came to do in in the world has now been completed. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world had completed that work. And at the moment of his death, while he still hung there on the cross, the curtain in the temple was rent from top to bottom, obviously signifying the completion of something. There is a change taking place. As we said earlier, there is a change in covenant. The new covenant is being established. The old Mosaic covenant is being done away with. Something is finished. But something was unfinished as well. He had shed his blood unto death for the forgiveness of sin. But his burial belongs with his suffering and his death. It's not the climax, but it is the conclusion. His burial was the full and final demonstration of the fact of his death. Someone being thought to be dead when they're not really dead is a pretty standard element of comedic shtick. We've all seen movies and sitcoms where that takes place. The reality is much different, of course. Those kinds of situations are quite rare. I didn't check with my funeral director friends, but I don't think any of them have ever walked down into their mortuary to find one of their bodies sitting up and greeting them with a hearty hello. Anyone who has been around dead bodies knows very well how utterly unlike living bodies they are. 
even a short time after death. The color disappears from the skin, the heat from the body, all of the tone which life had imparted to the muscles disappears. Of course, breathing ceases and all movement with it. The eyes go blank, the jaws slack. And in Jesus' case, John tells us that the soldiers, just to be absolutely sure that he was dead, thrust a spear into his side, causing a sudden flow of blood and water. And then his body is taken down from the cross and carried some distance to a tomb and tightly wrapped for burial, laid to rest in the grave. And all of this was a public demonstration and evidence that he had indeed died. In the section of the Heidelberg Catechism devoted to the articles of the Apostles' Creed, we find the question, why was he buried? And the answer is one of the shortest, if not the shortest in all the catechism, is this. His burial testifies that he really died. Seems pretty obvious. But that was a point that needed to be made. You'll remember that the enemies of Jesus were very concerned that there would be some kind of chicanery going on around his death. His disciples would come and steal the body or something. So it was important that it be demonstrated publicly that yes, he really died. He came to die in our place. To die for us. And so he had to die like us. To die as we die. Real death in human experience involves not only the passage of the spirit from the body, but the finality of the separation of the spirit from the body. The shame of a body without life, without beauty, without strength. Real death involves the grave. Abraham Kuyper put it bluntly, Christ would not be a complete savior for us if he had not descended into the grave. We also see that the Lord's burial was part of his death, indeed the culmination of his death, because it was the most dramatic evidence of what appeared to be his failure. And we don't talk about what Christ did in terms of failure, but certainly that would have been how it appeared to anyone who was watching the events of that day. Can you imagine what was going through the minds even of those who loved him? There they were, some of them, to the end. They would take possession of his body, as we just read. They would see to it that it had a proper burial, but in their minds... Who were they burying? How could he be the Messiah, the Savior of the world, when they're taking a dead body down from the cross? Maybe they were burying a prophet, perhaps a very great and good man who had brought them all nearer to God, but despite all that they had seen him do, all that they had heard him teach, how could he be anything other 
than just a man. He had told the twelve that they should expect this, but the twelve had either betrayed him or run off, and they never remembered very much about what he said anyway. To those who were now dealing with his body, his death was the sad and glorious conclusion to what had been such a promising life, but the end seemingly was now written, as it must be for each of us. And that was his friends. What about his enemies? There were a good number of men in Jerusalem that night who breathed a sigh of relief because they thought that they had finally eliminated this thorn from their side. They wanted him out of the way. And from all appearances, they have accomplished just that. They went home to enjoy a feast with their families and to get on with their lives There were a good number of men who felt a great weight lifted off their shoulders as Jesus' body was taken down from the cross and taken to the tomb. For them, life could now go back to normal. Never had Christ's true identity been as hidden as it was when his lifeless body was laid in that tomb by a few of his friends. Never had the difference between the majesty of God the Son and the humanity of Jesus of Nazareth been so dramatically revealed as it was when his cold, perhaps now stiffening body was laid in that tomb. The simple fact is that no one, friend or foe, expected a resurrection. Jesus had taught about it, But no one was expecting it. No one remembered. No one understood. So just in your mind's eye, see the Lord as his body is taken down from the cross. Dead. A failure. His entire program wrecked and come to nothing. His enemies triumphant. And think back to the Sunday before. His triumphal entry into the city to the hosannas of a great crowd. Think back a year before to the Mount of Transfiguration and the divine glory that radiated from him. Could there be a more complete reversal? His body now laying stiff and cold in a borrowed tomb. His disciples scattered for fear. His closest Female friends making hurried preparations to complete the burial. No crowds to cheer, no followers to hang on his every word. In all of these ways, the Lord's burial was the completion and perfection of his death. And so our Savior is placed in that garden tomb, and in darkness and silence, the finishing touches are put upon His sacrifice. But even that is not the whole story of Jesus' burial. Not only was Christ's burial the culmination and completion of his humiliation and his suffering and his death for our sins, but also as the bridge to his exaltation and the preparation for his victory 
over sin and death. After all, if Jesus is going to be raised, he has to be raised from somewhere. And that somewhere is his burial in the tomb. It's an amazing thing that long before these events, there had been prophesied through Isaiah, for one, that though the Lord died the death of a common criminal, he would not be buried with them. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And here we find the fulfillment of that prophecy. John tells us that it was located in a garden, and we read here in verse 53 that the body was taken down and wrapped in a linen cloth and laid in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever been lain. The Lord's body was the first body ever to be laid in that tomb. John also tells us that Nicodemus, who assisted Joseph of Arimathea in the burial of Jesus, supplied 75 pounds of fragrant spices, myrrh and aloes, for the perfuming of the body. Now, by any estimation, that was an extremely large amount. That's the That's the amount of spices used to prepare a king for burial. And so the father saw to it that though his son's death was a humiliation, his burial was not. The father was laying claim to his son's prerogative as king of kings even before anyone else realized what was going on. Also, take note of Joseph. Joseph is a member of the Sanhedrin, as was Nicodemus, who helped him. John tells us that. Nicodemus, remember, was the man who had come to Jesus by night and had with him that immortal conversation about the new birth. You can read about that in John chapter 3. And now at this darkest moment, when the danger of doing so was so great, both of these men reveal their true colors and come out into the open with their loyalty to Jesus. Nicodemus came to talk to Jesus at night because he didn't want anybody else to see him doing that. He had a lot to risk. And now that Jesus is gone, he's willing to risk it. It's a strange dynamic, isn't it? Something has happened within him and within Joseph. Now at this darkest moment, they come and they don't care who sees. What a time to declare their loyalty. The twelve had fled. The Lord seems to be a complete failure in his mission. But what a beautiful demonstration of the Lord's power over the hearts of men, of the truth of what he had promised, that his sheep would hear his voice and follow him. 
Even though they didn't understand what was happening, even though in their own thinking they could only surmise the worst, still there they are, willing to risk even their lives for Jesus. These men are heroes. Heroes of the faith. They are the two men who figure most magnificently in the narrative of the Lord's death, even as discouraged and depressed as they must have been. Church history is full of those who followed in their footsteps. Men and women who had much to lose, who nevertheless publicly displayed their loyalty to Christ when it was most dangerous to do so. I think of one lone Nobleman who stuck out his hand to shake the hand of Jan Hus as he was being led from the courtroom to his own execution. A courtroom crowded with the most powerful men of Europe. And yet he was willing to risk everything to give a little bit of comfort to this man who was about to suffer for the gospel. Or Lord Burley, who when the Scottish Council had voted that Samuel Rutherford, already on his deathbed, would not be allowed to die in his college rooms at St. Andrews, alone among all of his peers stood up to say, you have voted that honest man out of his college, but you cannot vote him out of heaven. And church history is just full of... Situations in which one lone person would stand and declare what was right and what is true at great risk to himself. Josephus and Nicodemus were like that. The Lord had not failed to win their hearts, and even his death had not destroyed their loyalty to him. These two men are the leading edge of a great host of men and women that the Lord Jesus Christ would captivate and who would prove loyal to him even to the point of their own death. And it is my hope, if the time should ever come to me, that I be found in that number. And I trust that's your desire as well. We learn elsewhere, as had also been long ago promised in Psalm 16, that the Lord's body did not suffer decomposition, as would have been the case with any other human remains. Unbeknownst to Joseph or Nicodemus or the women, and no thanks to the spices that he had been buried with, that tomb did not even begin to become a place of stench and putrefaction that it certainly would have under ordinary circumstances. Had Jesus been still dead on Sunday morning, the women might well have expected to encounter the sickeningly sweet smell of a decomposing body But his body was being kept by the power of God for the resurrection on the third day. And all of this, we can mention without so much as imagining what it must have been like when the soul of Jesus Christ, accompanied by the soul of that repentant thief, arrived that Friday afternoon in the courts of heaven. 
We read earlier in the same chapter, Jesus telling that thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And it is there that God the Son was a familiar figure to be sure. But the incarnate Son had never been there. The human nature of Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He had lived his life those 30 years in Palestine. And Jesus, the man, died on the cross of Calvary and was buried in that tomb. The man Jesus, in his spirit, then went to paradise with the spirit of that thief. And how do you suppose... Jesus of Nazareth was greeted there that afternoon. We can hardly imagine such things. We talk about Jesus' later ascension, and he sits down at the right hand of the Father, and we read those words in the scripture, but we don't really imagine what was going on. We don't know how to imagine it. Taking place in the realm of the spirit, we have to try to imagine a world like ours. In a little over a month after the resurrection, Jesus will enter once again, this time in his resurrected body. But now, prior to the resurrection, he comes, as he had promised the thief, into paradise. And we have no idea what that's like. And I think in human physical material terms... I think of a parade, a parade for a returning prince, city beautifully decked out for celebration, great laughing, weeping crowds lining the street, ticker tape falling from the sky, a proud father waiting to greet his son. What must heaven have been like then with its prince in human nature returned at least for those few hours before he would return to earth and take up his body once again Easter morning? Well, the culmination and the nadir of his death, the Lord's burial was also the anticipation of glorious things to come. No matter how much we may believe, that Christ has conquered death and removed its sting for all those who trust in him, no matter how firmly we may believe in the prospect of heaven after death, for many, death still casts a gloom. It still provokes fear. The thought, that, the thought of, of losing life is hard for us because life is all we've known. Proof of that is, although death is the one certainty of our lives, we tend to avoid thinking about it. We can fear death in spite of our theology and in spite of our faith. How different, how much better and more powerful would our lives be were we to carry about within ourselves a living sense of the Lord's victory over death and of his having left impotent, toothless, transformed into one short, dark passage, which leads us then into eternal life. That's all death is for the believer. There is nothing for us to fear in death. 
if we are in Christ. Here the Lord's burial will help us. And not just when we come to die, but to live our lives today basking in the triumph of the Savior. Because of his victory over death. Now, there may be some who hear this and say, well, this is really nothing I have to think about. I've got a lot of years left. (laughs) Well, you don't know that. You don't know that. But... Just look around this room. There are many of us who were here with us last January who are not here with us today. The Lord knows the number of our appointed days. We do not. One of these days, our bodies will be carried away from the place of death. And our spirits, if we are in Christ, will fly to paradise. Your death will be sealed with burial just as the Savior's was. No one will mistake the fact that your life has come to an end. But for those who know that we were buried with Christ so that we may be raised with him, we live day to day with this promise. While the certainty of death is everywhere with us, Though we try to push it away, for the people of God, the promise of resurrection is ours. Because he was raised, we will be raised as well. Death is not the end, as we will see when we return to Luke next week. My prayer for all of us is that we might meditate upon this mighty From Bethlehem to the tomb, this work that Jesus performed for our salvation. Great joy, great faith, great love, great peace, great hope belong to those whose hearts embrace these things which were written for us. Have you ever walked through an old cemetery and been reminded, as I have on several occasions, how death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ lie at the heart of all we believe, all we are, all we will be as Christians. You don't see it much anymore. Engraving a headstone has become extremely expensive. (laughs) But there was a day, and you can see some of them out here, when gravestones had significant inscriptions written upon them. Gravestones used to say what Christians should still say, first themselves and then to one another. Gravestones say what our hearts should not forget. Let me just leave you with one such inscription. God, my Redeemer, lives, and often from the skies looks down and watches all my dust till he should bid it rise. Father, may we have hearts like that, trusting in you until you bring us to where you are. May we rejoice in the fact that all that we 
have experienced and will experience, our Savior has also experienced. And so he is our sympathetic high priest. Thank you, Father, for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.